For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon, Our Reasonable Service. Our Reasonable Service, this is part two, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. So if you've been keeping up with us now in the structure of Paul's letter to this point, uh, you know that in Romans chapter 12, Paul has shifted his emphasis and he has shifted the emphasis now from theological explanation to theological application. Uh, The application that you begin to see now in chapter 12 is directly connected to, it flows from or flows out of all of that good instruction that we got in the chapters that precede this one. The two, all of that theology and now this application, the two are married together. They cannot be put asunder. So the theology then that we've sought to understand in the first 11 chapters of this book is not merely for the sake of gaining more information. It it can't terminate on knowledge alone. That theological information is for the purpose or for the goal of God-glorifying adoration. And information with adoration leads to life transformation. To state all of that very simply, light produces heat. Light produces heat. Genuine Christian living doesn't grow out of the ground. It doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't materialize out of thin air. True godliness is the inevitable offspring, it is the inevitable offspring of the arranged marriage between truth and grace. Godliness pours forth from the marriage between truth and grace. And the genuine, godly, true Christian is going to be a child zealously devoted to both parents, right? It is the truth of the living God embraced through faith, applied in the heart by the grace of God, by the spirit of God that keeps you from being conformed to this world, verse two, right? That keeps you or that produces humility so that you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, verse three. That produces love for the Lord's church, verses four through eight. It's the truth of God embraced through faith, applied in the heart by the grace of God that protects love from hypocrisy in verse 9. That produces kind affection toward one another. Verse 10, it produces zeal for the Lord. Verse 11, it produces faithfulness. Verse 12, it produces generosity. Verse 13, think with me now apart from being zealously, diligently devoted to the truth of God, applied in the heart by the grace of God, you're likely to curse rather than bless. Verse 14, you may actually find yourself in the position of rejoicing over those who weep. Verse 15, you're likely to be wise in your own opinion rather than a humble peacemaker. Verse 16, thinking that you know the truth when you have believed the lie. Thinking you're acting for the truth while you're acting actually in opposition to it. Are we to think that we're somehow immune from such error when so many have fallen into such error? Brothers and sisters, we're not immune from it. We are not immune from it. It's been made obviously, evidently clear 
before our eyes. We're not immune from this. We need truth and we need the grace of God. We need the marriage of truth and grace, reality in our own lives. Apart from being zealously devoted to the truth of God applied in the heart by grace, you're likely to disregard the good that you should do as you bear witness, bear testimony of Jesus Christ before a watching world. That's verse 17. You're likely to forget that living peaceably with all men actually requires you being peaceable. That's verse 18. That you should not take matters into your own hands as though the Lord is not sovereign. That's verse 19. In other words, it's the truth of God embraced through faith and applied in the heart of the Christian by the grace of God that produces a life of genuine godliness. Where does the life of genuine godliness come from? It comes from the truth of God applied in the heart by grace, applied in the heart by his spirit. That produces genuine godliness. It produces a life that Paul describes here in our text as our reasonable service of worship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, last week, Paul is calling us to here a whole-souled, wholehearted commitment to this pursuit of godliness. The only true expression of gospel realities that is consistent with all that we have been given by God and all that we are in union with Jesus Christ, the only life that truly adorns the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a life of complete and entire consecration to God. It's the only consistent response to the gospel. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I plead with you, I implore you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable which is the rational, the only rational, which is the logical response. It is your reasonable service of worship. Last week, we looked first at the foundation of that service of worship, drawing upon the imagery associated with the whole and continual burnt offering. The entirety of the Christian's life before God is to be a whole and continual sacrifice of worship a sacrifice of service, right? The basis for that devotion is the bedrock of divine accomplishment, the bedrock of God's redemptive accomplishment on our behalf, what Paul refers to here in our text as the mercies of God. The Christian life is built upon the mercies of God. The Christian life has to be built on that right foundation. If it's not built on that right foundation, it's built on sand. And when the storm of God's judgment comes, if that house is built on sand, that house will fall. Now, next, having looked first at the foundation of that service of worship, we next looked at the nature of that service of worship, the nature of that worship. Considering that foundation of divine accomplishment, we are to present the entirety of our person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to present the entirety of our person as a sacrifice to God. That sacrifice is a living, holy And acceptable. It's a sacrifice of self denial as an act or as a service of worship to God. It is that whole and continual sacrifice before God that Paul refers to as your reasonable or rational or logical service. Paul means to convey with this that a full consecration of all that we are is the only rational response to the blessings that have been poured out on us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In view of the mercies of God, a lesser response would be unreasonable. 
in view of the mercy that God has lavished upon us, a lesser response would be irrational. Presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is our reasonable service of worship. Paul does not mean to portray here that this life of complete devotion as the eventual commitment of an older or more mature Christian. He does not intend to consign this level of commitment to some hypothetical future blessing or second blessing, some future level of commitment that a super Christian might make. The life, this life of entire consecration to God is the solemn obligation of every Christian. Do you see? It is the only reasonable, rational response to the mercies of God poured out on us. Now, having considered the foundation of our service and the nature of our service in part one, I've planned for us to spend our time this morning in consideration of the pattern and purpose of that sacrificial service in part two. We're gonna consider the pattern and purpose of that sacrificial service. Consider then with me the pattern of that service as described by Paul in verse two. Here's the pattern. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The leading thought of verse two involves a pattern of conduct, a pattern of conduct. It's a pattern of conduct connected with the self-sacrifice described in verse one. Paul calls us to a life of entire consecration to God in verse one, a life of undivided devotion, that devotion framed in terms of a whole and continual offering of our very life in the worship of God, And Paul then goes on to define that offering of worship in terms of our relationship to this world. You see what Paul is doing? We are to sacrifice the entirety of our persons in consecration to God. And then Paul defines or describes that entire consecration, that entire commitment in terms first of our relationship to this world. The point of these connected thoughts is this. We may present ourselves to God as living and holy and acceptable sacrifices only if we are not conformed to this world. If we are not being conformed to this world, only if we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. You see, the two are connected. We may only offer this sacrifice to God if we are not being conformed to this world, but rather we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Paul states the matter both negatively and positively. Negatively, do not be conformed with this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Positively, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now think first with me about that negative proposition. When we observe a genuine Christian truly living in the light of God's revealed word, when we see a Christian living a life of self-sacrifice or self-denial as his reasonable service of worship, we see the conduct of a transformed life that does not conform to the pattern of this world. Do you see? Now his statement is given the force of a command here in verse two. Don't be conformed. Literally in the Greek, stop being conformed. What Paul means by the grammar there is that you are being conformed and you've got to stop it, right? <laughs> the, the, you being conformed to this world is a default character of your existence here. And Paul's admonition, Paul's command is for you to stop being conformed to this world. The word refers to being pressed into a mold. 
It refers to assuming a certain form or a certain appearance. It refers to being shaped, to being molded. And what form, shape, or appearance are we to avoid? The form, shape, or appearance of this world. We are to stop being conformed to this world. The Greek word translated there, world, in verse two, isn't the common Greek word that we're used to seeing translated world. It's a word that literally refers to age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. So this age is described then, Paul's words here, as a type of potter, and you are the impressionable clay. This age is seeking to mold you or to shape you after its own image. And it is applying significant force in its effort to mold you. Notice Paul doesn't say here in verse two, do not seek to be conformed to this age. He doesn't say that you're not to seek it, right? The word is passive rather than active. The shaping is something that is being done to you. This age is exercising a force upon you and I. This age is seeking to conform you after its pattern, after its own image, to shape you after its lusts, its desires, its pattern, after its debauchery, after its thinking. And just as the entirety of your person is to be presented to God as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, the entirety of your person is in view of this worldly influence. The way that you think is influenced by this age. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? The way that you think is influenced, powerfully influenced by this age. What you understand and believe to be true and false is powerfully influenced by this age. Your values, your convictions, your desires, your affections are being pressed into the mold of this age. Your will Your will is being bent by forces that you do not understand or even acknowledge most of the time. Your will is being bent, molded, shaped into the pattern of this age. This is happening, and this is happening constantly. It's happening constantly. There is a constant force, a constant pressure being applied. And the influence of this present age is pervasive. It invades Everything makes its way in through your eye gate, makes its way in through your ear gate, infects and corrupts and pollutes your thinking, infects, corrupts, pollutes your heart. It is pervasive. It is found, brothers and sisters, it is found to be a powerful influence, a pervasive influence among professing Christians. What do we see all around us? We see the world infiltrating the church. Brothers and sisters, if the world is infiltrating the church, it has first infiltrated the minds and hearts of professing Christians. It's infiltrating the church through the church. (laughs) That force is powerful and it is pervasive and it is constant. The force being applied is distinctively immoral. Conformity with this age, verse 2, stands in direct contrast with what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, verse two. The two are held in contrast. So the force being applied by this age is conforming you to a pattern that exists in opposition 
to the will of God. It is constantly applying pressure in opposition to the will of God. Now, if some have difficulty understanding the extent of that influence, understanding the, the extent of that force, remember, remember for a moment that we live in a culture where men identify as women and women identify as men. <laughs> and that gender is something that is not concrete, determined by God, but is fluid. Now, where did we get to that complete position of idiocy and perversity in our country? By the constant force and pressure of this age conforming us to a pattern, a pattern that is in direct opposition to the will of God. That thinking, by the way, doesn't represent the fringes of our culture any longer, as it used to. That thinking, the spirit of this age, that thinking represents more the mainstream of our culture. And often you can tell where we are as a culture by looking at the extremes. When you see the extreme, you know where the middle is. And our middle has shifted, the middle of this culture has shifted substantially because of that force being applied, which conforms us, seeking to conform us into its pattern. The spirit of this age is pressing people into an ethic that stands in direct opposition to God. Now, it's in this way, and it's for this reason, that this present age is set in direct contrast with the age to come. The Bible speaks of two ages and two ages only, this age and the age to come. These two ages are set biblically in contrast to one another. The character of this age is described as evil. Galatians chapter one, verse four, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Why did Jesus Christ die? To deliver us from this present evil age, to usher us into an age of everlasting righteousness. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 speaks of the darkness of this age, that darkness characterized by all manner of immorality, all manner of perversity. The character of this age in conformity with the character of the one who presides over it. Those who live in that age, doing the will of their father, right? Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Lest they, they be pressed into a mold after God's own making, right? And not be pressed into their own mold. Having been blinded by Satan to do his will, those in conformity, those being pressed into the pattern of this evil age are filled with unrighteousness and they foment unrighteousness. Peter says they're shocked. They're amazed when you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you when you do not. So whereas this age is marked or characterized by unrighteousness, the age to come is characterized by righteousness. Second Peter chapter three, verse 13. We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God. All of those cults that deny the deed of your Lord Jesus Christ. You need to do something with that particular passage, right? Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. To the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness 
is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The character of that age which is to come is marked by righteousness. As seeing that the morality or seeing that the character, the ethic of this present age is set in contrast with the morality or the character of the age to come, Paul's command, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, is in effect a command to be conformed to the character, the principles, and the pattern associated with that age which is to come. The two are set in contrast. If Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, what Paul is essentially saying is, be conformed to that pattern. Right? The two are mutually exclusive and they are opposed to one another. Be conformed to that standard of righteousness. Be conformed to a pattern or a standard of righteousness. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that we might be delivered from this present evil age and delivered, transferred, conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love to live in conformity, not to live in conformity with this age, but to live in conformity with the purpose for which Christ died. If you think about it with me, if you live in conformity with this world, with this present evil age, then you are living contrary to the purpose for which Jesus Christ came and died. It makes us adulterers and adulteresses, right? James says, love for the world makes us adulteresses and adulterers. Turn with me to Titus chapter two. Let's look at this text together. Titus chapter two. There's several texts in the Bible that deal with this, that address this, this age and the age to come. Titus chapter two, look there at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The truth of that is taught in scripture, right? Truth. But that grace of God to teach us truth also works, works in us. And what does it do? Verse 12, it teaches us that denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts, in other words, denying, refusing to be pressed into the pattern of this age, we should then live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And how is it that we do that? Verse 13, looking for the age to come, right? Hastening the age to come, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. To redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself, his own special people, giving themselves as sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. You see? Verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Titus, rebuke with all authority. Explain, exhort, speak these things. Brothers and sisters, we are to live in this age as those who are citizens of the age to come. We are to live in this age as those who will inherit the age to come. We are to live in active, vigorous, diligent, zealous opposition 
We are to live in active opposition to the spirit or the character of this age. And we are to live in conformity in diligent, zealous, active, vigorous conformity with the morality or the character of this age. The age or with that age which is to come. Not with this age, this evil age. Get particular there and start messing up. We need to live in vigorous, active, ongoing conformity with the age that is to come. We must not allow ourselves to be molded or shaped by the ethic of this age. We must not allow ourselves to be pressed into the pattern of this age. One has rightly said that if you're living for now, and you're living for no more than now. He said, how far reaching is this indictment? If all our calculations, plans, ambitions are determined by what falls within life here in this present age, then we are the children of this age. You're building your house on sand. And that house will one day come crumbling down on top of you. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, all that is part of this present evil age, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the father, but is of this world. And this world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Stated negatively, stop being conformed to this world. Stated positively, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you think of Paul's positive enjoinder there, the word that Paul uses for this command is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It's the same word. Do not be conformed, but rather be metamorphosed. <laughs> uh, be transformed. It's a word that refers to a change in nature, a change in essence. It's a fundamental transformation in the very essence or the very essential character of the person. With the grammar of this particular word, Paul isn't referring here to a single point in time that takes place at our conversion or when we're born again. Paul is speaking of an ongoing work of transformation that must take place daily in the life of the genuine Christian. It's something that has to take place continuously. The statement describes what is a deep-seated, fundamental, radical, revolutionary, and permanent change in a person. It's a change wrought by a process of inward renewal that can only rightly be attributed to the Spirit of God. We can't do it ourselves. It's a change, an inward transformation so significant, it can only be attributed to the Spirit of God at work in the heart and in the mind of a genuine believer, one who's been born again and indwelt with his Spirit. Now the means, the means by which this ongoing revolutionary transformation is to take place is, to quote Paul, the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Paul is referring to a transformation in the way that we think. It's amazing to me how quick we are to disregard Bible, the Bible, disregard theology, disregard all that God has revealed to us there. And Brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, you and I know that to be true in our own experience. How often in your Christian experience have you struggled with daily Bible reading, daily prayer, devotion to God? Is that something that just comes easy to you in this life? 
Why doesn't it come easy to do? Why is it not easy for you? Because we're being pressed by forces outside of our control into the pattern of this age. Our thinking being molded and shaped by this evil present age being pressed into its pattern. When we, what we're being called to here is a radical transformation by the renewing of our mind that presses us into a pattern that conforms with God's own will and not the will of this world, not the will of this age. We've been accustomed to think after the pattern of this world. And now we have to be reprogrammed to think the way that God would have us think. The only way that we can do that is through the word of God. The means that we're to undergo, the means through which we're to undergo that transformation is said to be the renewing of our mind. We must have our thoughts reprogrammed. The grammar here speaks of a process. Paul isn't referring to a momentary or an instantaneous change. Paul is referring to a lifelong renewal. With these terms, Paul is referring to a biblical process of sanctification. With regeneration, that process of inward renewal begins. It begins. Paul says that we were predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That conforming process begins at conversion, begins at regeneration, and then it continues for the rest of our lives. We know that the new birth results in a radical transformation, a radical transformation of our inward man. And it results in a radical transformation that is so thorough so pervasive that if we do not see the outward manifestations of that radical transformation, we can have no confidence that a person has actually been born again and no confidence that a person is actually genuinely converted. However, having begun a good work in that one who has been born again, God will be sure to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That transformational renewal that began at regeneration now continues over his lifetime, constantly reforming his thoughts, constantly reforming his beliefs, his values, his attitudes, his convictions, his affections, his desires, such that his very person, all the faculties of his person are brought into conformity with Christ's own person. Use this analogy to describe it before, that a baby, when a baby is born, a baby has all the parts, right? Fingers and toes, two eyes, a nose, two ears. A baby has all the parts and then a baby grows. As the baby ages, it would look very unnatural for him to remain looking like a baby, even, even though it has all the essential parts. You know, for a 37, 38, 40-year-old man to look like that baby is unbecoming. Right? He's got to mature. He's got to mature. But he has all the fundamental parts that are there. When we're born again as Christians, we have the fundamental parts. All the faculties of our being have been affected by the new creation. By, ha by having been given a new heart, by having been indwelt by his spirit. But we have to grow and we have to mature. A 20-year-old Christian that still looks, acts, and sounds like a baby, it's very unbecoming of a 20-year-old Christian. We've got to mature. That process of in renewal begins at regeneration and continues the rest of our lives. And we must be renewed, transformed by the renewing of our mind. We must grow. And God will be sure to continue that work that he started. Now that transformational renewal, again, begins at regeneration, continues over his lifetime, involves the renewal or the transformation of all of our faculties such that our person 
is brought into conformity with his person. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is the one who does that work. That process does not take place apart from or aside from the renewing of our mind. You can't just carry your Bible around and expect that it happened. You can't sleep with your Bible under your pillow at night and expect that it happens. It doesn't take place apart from or aside from the renewing of our mind. It takes place precisely through the renewing of our mind. It takes place through that means. Our minds renewed as they are washed day by day by or with water by the word. Our minds are renewed through the word of God. God created you and I with a mind. And it's a mind, brothers and sisters, with which we are to know him, with which, with which we are to comprehend what has been revealed. He created you with a will. He created you with thoughts, with emotions, with affections, with desires. And he has determined that Christ will be formed in us, that we will be conformed to Christ through the connection of his word with my heart. That's the means through which I'm going to be conformed into Christ's image. And that connection between the word of God and my heart runs through my mind. My mind must be reformed. It must be refurbished. It must be renovated according to his word. I need to take God's word into my mind. I need to meditate upon it there. I need to think about it there. I need to understand it. I need to apprehend it. And let it, I need to allow it to transform the way that I think. Ignorance needs to be replaced with knowledge. Ignorance needs to be replaced with understanding. Ignorance needs to be replaced with a knowledge of who he is and what he's done. Foolishness needs to be replaced with wisdom. The only way that's going to happen is when you take in God's word. It's not going to happen apart from his word. And that's going to happen by a work of his spirit and only a work of his spirit. Having renovated the way that I think, his word is going to have its effect on my heart and on my will. And there will inevitably be a transformation in my character and in my conduct. It is inevitable. It comes through that means. We have to connect the revealed word of God with our heart. And the way that that's connected is through our minds. The word taking root in our mind, that raw material working itself out there, affecting the way that I believe, informing the way that I understand, changing who I am. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a work that we have to be all about. When Paul says that you are to present yourselves your entire person, the faculties of your being, the very members of your bodies, when you're to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, this is what he's talking about. Devote yourself entirely to this battle. Do not be pressed into the pattern of this evil age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put God's word in connection to your heart. Brothers and sisters, you will flounder 
And you may fall under the power and influence of this present evil age if your mind is not being renewed by the word of God. You will flounder and you may fall under the power and influence of your own remaining ignorance if you heed the self-justifying arguments of your own fallen reason to reject his word or neglect his word. If your mind is not sufficiently renewed by the word of God, then when difficult circumstances arise, you will not possess sufficient resources with which to raise an adequate defense. And you know that in the midst of difficulty. You're unable unable to apply the word of God to your circumstances such that you are not swept away with the evil pattern of this age. We have to be able to raise an adequate defense against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The only way that you can do that is by renewing your mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you do not, you will flounder and you may fall. Many Many have fallen. Paul speaks of Demas, right? Demas, who had forsaken him when he needed him most. When he needed him most, Demas had forsaken him, having loved this present age. Paul describes our commitment to these things as our reasonable service of worship. The only rational response to all that God has done for us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having discussed the foundation of that service, the nature of that service, Having discussed the pattern of that service, Paul concludes verse two with the purpose of that service. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The purpose of the command here in verse two is not that you sit as judge over the will of God. I'm going to prove it to be true. No, as if to determine for yourself whether the will of God is good or bad. That doesn't need to be determined. It's settled fact, right? The command is given that you may learn to discern the will of God in your circumstances. It's interesting, isn't it? You apply this to our circumstances. The purpose of the command to renew, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The purpose of that, of that command is that you may learn to discern the good, perfect, acceptable will of God in your own circumstances. So you may be able to discern it. It's through an ongoing process of transformation and renewal that we grow in our understanding of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That we grow in our ability to discern it. Now, the word is used this way in Luke chapter 12. Listen to what the Lord says to, his, to the, the disciples and the multitudes in Luke chapter 12. He says, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the West, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it is. They can discern the weather. When you see the South wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is. The Lord tells them, you hypocrites, you can discern, that's our word, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? How is it? that you don't know this time, the time of his own ministry on the earth. How?
How is it that they didn't know? Because they had not been transformed by the renewing of their mind. They didn't know. They weren't able to discern it. They weren't able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The way that, this is the way that Paul uses our word in the context of Romans chapter 12, verse two. Refusing to be pressed into the pattern of this world, our minds progressively renewed and transformed by the word of God, we then grow in our ability to discern the will of God in our circumstances. There is not one single circumstance, not one, There's not one circumstance that you will ever face in your entire life for which his will is not perfectly sufficient and perfectly suited to direct you. Not one, not one. If, if you are able to sift through the deceptions of this world the deceptions of the devil, the deceptions of your own self-justifying flesh. And if in that circumstance, you were able to discern how the word of God applies to your circumstance. There's not one circumstance that you'll face that God's word is not sufficient for. If you've been renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind and able to discern his will and how his will applies in your circumstance. If not, brothers and sisters, if not, when difficult circumstances arise, you will flounder and you will fall. We have to prepare ourselves, right? This, this, <laughs> this is not a cruise we're on. <laughs> this is a battle that we're in. This is a war that we're facing. We've got a fight to wage, a warfare to wage. We have to prepare ourselves. We need his word and we need his spirit applying his word. We need truth and we need grace. The Lord Jesus warned, the time is coming and now is, brothers and sisters, that whoever kills you will think that he offers God latreia, reasonable, rational service of worship. It's the same word. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. They will kill you thinking that they offer God a spiritual service of worship. And why is that? Because their thinking is not in line with the word of God. Their thinking is not sufficient to discern from the revealed word of God what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. They can't do it. They think that way because their minds have not been renewed. They're unable to discern in their circumstances what God wills. What they need is a powerful and transformational marriage of truth and grace. Brothers and sisters, in closing, think with me now. Consider all that has been provided to you, for you, through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, all that God has given you, all of that exalted theology from chapters one to chapters 11. It is upon the bedrock of that glorious foundation compelled by the love of Jesus Christ for us, compelled by grateful hearts for all that he's done for us. It's on the bedrock of that foundation that we are to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. It is the only response that is consistent with all that we've been given in union with him. 
in order that we may be able to offer that service of worship to God in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to him, a service of worship that is the reasonable response and solemn obligation of every single genuine Christian, we must diligently, zealously, constantly battle on two fronts. One, we must not allow this world to influence our thinking, to influence our beliefs, our values, our affections. We must not allow this evil age to shape us and to mold us, cut off its influence. We must oppose the pressure that is heaped on us by this evil age. We must stand in opposition to it. We must resist it. That pressure is often very subtle. Don't be deceived. It is pressure, although at times very subtle, it is pressure that is constantly being applied through the institutions of this world, through our entertainment, through our education, through our government, through our works, through our politics, right? There is no neutrality. Your mind is being filled. Your heart is being won. The heart and mind of your spouse is being filled. Their hearts are being won. The heart and mind of your children are being filled. They are being won. Who is it that is consistently winning that battle? Who is it? Is the world, the pattern of this evil age, is that winning the battle? We must not allow this world to influence our thinking. Secondly, we must constantly place ourselves under the mind-renewing work of the Spirit of God as he applies the Word of God to our minds and hearts. Constantly, we must not allow the pressures of this evil age to keep us from his word. You cannot allow the world, your own flesh or the devil to keep you from his word. What's the, the saying that uh, uh, his word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from his word, <laughs> right? If you would offer yourself a living sacrifice to God, if you would adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with that kind of life, which if you're a genuine Christian, I know, I know, I know, that's your heart. That's what you desire. You desire, that's not burdensome to you. That's the desire of your heart. Lord God, bind me to the horns of the altar. Sprinkle my blood upon the altar for your own glory. Make my life a living sacrifice. I know if you're a Christian, that's your heart. If you would offer, if you would live up to this high calling that Paul presents to us in Romans chapter 12, verse one. If you would offer yourself a living sacrifice, if you would be able to discern what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, if you would endure the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties, if you would make it through, if you would persevere in that time of difficulty, which most certainly will come, then you must not you must not, you must not allow yourself to be pressed into the pattern of this evil age. You must, you must, you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind as the good and acceptable and perfect will of God makes connection with your heart through your mind. His revealed word changes and transforms the very fabric of who you are. We have a tremendous 
battle to face, brothers and sisters. And we must endure to the end if we are to be saved. We have to engage ourselves in this fight. Don't be distracted from it. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this instruction. Thank you for how it warns us. Thank you for how it encourages us. And I pray, Lord, that you would, in grace and mercy to us, apply your truth in our minds and in our hearts by your spirit. Wash our minds with water by the word. Renew our minds, transform the way that we think. And Lord, I pray that that would have profound, profound, significant, radical, revolutionary impact on what we believe, how we think, and ultimately, Lord, how we live. Change us, transform us, conform us into the image of your Son. For our own good, Lord, we pray that you would do this for your own glory. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.